Well, hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast. Today I am joined by Reverend Dr. Danielle Trowick. Danny is a Christian theological researcher and author and speaker. She's a founding director of Single Minded Ministry and an adjunct teacher at Moore Theological College in Sydney. Danny publishes regular articles on singleness, sexuality, marriage and complementarianism on her substack, which is titled That Girl Boss Theologian. It's a great title. She's also the author of this recent book, The Meaning of Singleness, subtitled Retrieving an Eschatological Vision for the Contemporary Church. Danny, great to see you today. Thanks for having me on. I'm really glad to be here. Oh, it's a it's a real privilege to be able to talk to you today, and there's so much I'm looking forward to to talking to you about your your book, The Meaning of Singleness. As I said before, we kind of start recording. It has um, opened my eyes to a problem, a problem that I guess I knew was there in part, but I don't I didn't think I knew how pronounced the challenge was, uh, and also how much we've drifted as a church, particularly over the past 500 years, compared to the way that early Christians seem to think about and talk about singleness and marriage. So that was massive to me and I'm really looking forward to talking about it. There is just so much we could talk about. Um, why don't you just kind of briefly introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, sure. So my name's, well, Danielle, except only my mum calls me Danielle and normally it's <laughs> when I'm in trouble. So I, I go by Danny. Um, uh, I'm, you can hear probably from my accent uh, that I'm from a different part of the world. I'm down from, I'm in Australia. I'm a Sydney girl, born and bred. I studied theology at um, Moore Theological College down here in Sydney, which is a the Sydney Anglican Diocese Theological Seminary. Um, I came out of that and um, was ordained as a deacon in the Anglican Church here in Sydney uh, and went to work in a church for almost seven years doing mainly women's ministry. Uh, and during that time, had an interest in thinking theologically about singleness, but also was spending a lot of time pastorally caring for and discipling single women, um, not only single women, but there were quite a few of them around. And that time was just really instrumental for me thinking, actually, I think there's a lot more for us to be thinking about um, and putting into practice in our churches on this topic. And so when I finished up in that position, my intention had been to take a six-month break write a book on singleness and then sort of head back out into parish ministry. Uh, but somehow that very quickly turned into a PhD on singleness. <laughs> um, and that I started that in 2016 and what are we in? We're towards the end of 2023 and the PhD is done, the book's written, but I'm still going uh, in this area. So. Is, this, is this something that you always knew you wanted to do, like the academic study research side of things? No, I mean, I've always been academically inclined, but I remember actually when I was studying at Moore College and I had to pick, you had to decide whether you were going to do a year of Hebrew or not, or if you're going to do, you could do Hebrew the whole time. That was never going to happen for me, but I had to decide whether I'd do one year or not because um, we studied Greek, that was compulsory. Uh, and the only reason to really do Hebrew in my mind was, well, you needed to do a year of Hebrew to get an honours and you needed to get an honours if you were going to do a PhD. And I was like, I remember distinctly thinking, never in a million years am I going to do a PhD, so that's not a consideration. I did end up doing that year of Hebrew, and so the kind of joke was on me when unexpectedly, sort of 10 years later, I suddenly found myself in the middle of a the PhD I was never in a million years going to do. Um, but now on the other side of that, I think, yeah, I have realised that thinking, not, not academically, but 
deeply theologically and doing this kind of research and writing and resourcing uh, is something I really love and I think God has gifted me into a degree and is is building my expertise and skills in for the sake of the church yeah mm, wow wonderful well we're certainly benefiting from you pursuing that um with this book and the work that you're doing and writing about i should i should apologize before we begin because we're recording this just a few days after the england women's football team beat the australian <laughs> women's football <No>. team. So. <laughs> i can't believe you brought that up should i should 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 I bring up the cricket? Should we talk about the say, cricket? Yeah, no, I'm talking to an Aussie. I can't help but mention sports, particularly when we win. <laughs> okay, so let's let's talk about the the kind of concept uh, the concept behind the book and uh, some of the things that you you bring out in it. Um, and what I'd really love to do is perhaps first of all to have you you share for us um, some of the changing shape of the way that singleness. Um, has been thought of among Christians and talked about in Christian theology. Uh, yeah, maybe we start with that. See, I mean, it's a 2,000 years. Go! <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, do you want the whole 2,000 years? Um, I mean, it, there's a lot that you could say, couldn't you? But uh, broadly speaking, um, the early church, and even, you know, when you say the early church, there's different centuries where there's different emphases. And, you know, so I am speaking in generalizations for the sake of this podcast, but read my book, all the histories in there. But broadly speaking, the early church, the first, you know, 500 or so years of the Christian church really did have a very high view of the unmarried Christian life. Uh, uh, they didn't use the word singleness, single, you know, singleness as a word is a development sort of in the mid 20 you know the mid second millennium um but they used words like virginity chastity continence um widows and you know there was all sorts of different ideas going on but broadly speaking in terms of the binary paradigm of being married or unmarried and sexually chaste and godly in either of those situations uh singleness the unmarried state um really got a good rap uh sometimes a bit too much of a good rap uh, and sometimes in some pretty weird and wacky ways. But what I knew that already going into this, I knew that the early church, you know, at times even venerated virginity, we might say, but I don't think I really understood why. I thought it might have been, you know, because they were kind of down on sex or, you know, were kind of pushing away the idea of bodily existence. Uh, I was delighted but also stunned to discover that, actually the the main thing that was going on for the early church was thinking about um, marriage and quote unquote singleness in this life now in light of the life that was to come, um, which was my kind of interest going into this research. And suddenly I found 1500 years of history here. Uh, the medieval church, again, massive time period, huge geographical kind of distance we're talking about, but by and large, the medieval church also really had a strong um, appreciation for the unmarried life uh, with reference to the new creation, with reference to the life to come. Things weren't great at times there, you know, um, in terms of what was going on in the celibate clergy and the monasteries. Uh, and there was a lot of concubines and a lot of illegitimate children running around and vows that were made that were never kept um, not by all, but by a good portion of, of those who vowed uh, celibacy. And the Reformation kind of came along um, and all sorts of reasons. You know, the Reformation is a deeply complex theological movement, uh, but one of the things that came out of that was 
a um a rediscovery of the goodness and i think this is a really important thing of the goodness of marriage as a created good um uh in this world uh but throughout human history it's kind of been a pendulum that just swings wildly from one end to the other and so at the time of the reformation the pendulum kind of overcorrected and swung right up to marriage singleness the unmarried life not only became downplayed but really problematic uh, there was this idea that you couldn't make it sexually in chastity as an unmarried person, uh, and that really fueled the next 500 years to where we are today. That also got then integrated with a whole lot of sociological and ideological changes in the West, uh, and we kind of are where we are today as a Christian evangelical church, which kind of sees that the flourishing human life is the married with children human life, and that singleness is only actually something that is good for a very rare person um an especially gifted person there you mm. go two thousand years <laughs> in gross generalizations <laughs> superb and, and you know, there's lots there's lots i could want to ask about all those things and i think we'll we'll kind of we'll come back to critiquing the contemporary attitude towards marriage in light of perhaps the wake of the the reformation a bit later but because what I, I found that really surprising is interesting to know that you you were surprised by this as well thinking that I had always assumed also that the um, that the veneration of celibacy was in large part kind of a, a Gnostic influence that the body's bad, yeah. sex is bad. But actually to see how rooted in scripture and eschatological it was, like it had the end times and the return of Christ in mind. Um, could you explain how that happened and what some of the key verses are perhaps as we talk about this and the early church talked about it? Yeah, well, that was so going into this research, the, the the thing that I had been interested in for a number of years beforehand was uh, this idea from Matthew chapter 22, where Jesus is talking to the Sadducees about the, the resurrection age. Um, and they're trying to trip him up and, you know, get him to admit that the resurrection age is just made up nonsense. And they tell him that riddle of a woman who marries seven brothers, they all die. Which mm. one is she going to be married to in heaven? And Jesus as Jesus is prone to do, just says, you're wrong. Uh, <laughs> and the reason that they're wrong is because they don't know the scripture or the power of God. And he says in the resurrection age, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like the angels in heaven. And I had been aware of that scripture for some time, um, you know, many, many years, but it was only sort of when I was studying at theological college that a lecturer who went on to become my PhD supervisor actually helped me to see that, all right, well, if none of us are going to be married for eternity, not, you know, we're all going to be quote unquote single. We're not going to be husbands and wives in the resurrection age. Doesn't that have something to say about singleness here and now? Doesn't it perhaps give it a certain dignity and significance? And I was intrigued by that for years. And that's really what I wanted to do my research on. But I was quite concerned that I haven't heard this anywhere else. Am I just making something up because it's convenient for me to think this way? I, I really wanted to go back and see if there was anywhere else in Christian history and theology. And so, as I said, when I got to the early church, I was like, oh, wow, these guys were all over this. Um, and there was lots of development of that uh, across the first 500 years. Um, you know, one of the main themes that was very hard for me to get my head around, and I think it is for most of us um, today, is that until basically Augustine comes along, most of the early church fathers thought that marriage and therefore sexual union in marriage 
was the res- was a remedy for the fall. So it didn't exist in the creation, in the garden, sorry, um, but it was God's provision for a fallen humanity. Uh, now that sounds really weird to us and that's because Augustine came along and sort of said, no, 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 guys, eventually, he, it took him some time to get there, but eventually he said, no, 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 marriage and, and sex, therefore, is part of God's good design um, rather than God's concession to a fall in humanity. Um, but for both those before Augustine and those after Augustine, the idea was that actually, well, for those before Augustine, the idea was, well, that the garden it was kind of this ideal place of perpetual virginity. And so, you know, they had this idea of kind of wanting to get back to, to that ideal of creation before the fall. And they saw that as the new creation as the kind of retrieval of that. Um, for Augustine, he saw it as being before, you know, the fall as being part of the good creation, but he saw the new creation as actually being um, different to this creation, the end of this creation and um, not a retreat and return to the garden, but heading to the city um, and a city where we as the church will be married to Christ, but collectively will not be married to each other. And so all of the early church themes kind of bounce off off those ideas um, and in ways that don't always agree with each other, or, you know, but are really interesting to think about in that sense. Mm, that's really helpful. And um, so I think building on that kind of Augustinian idea that we go from the garden, but we're going to a city, therefore the the church is married to Christ and it is the church that's supposed to be, supposed to take primary importance as, a, as the family, influential family in our lives. I really liked, um, and, I, and I confess to my ignorance, I'd not heard of this man before, but Stanley Hauerwas, who's considered the, the best or leading theologian, America's theologian, um, according to Time magazine, um, he kind of, I guess, building on that sort of idea, talks about the difference between there may be a, a natural law of marriage and creation within, you know, children within marriage, but things have changed now because of Christ's resurrection, and that's supposed to alter how we think about family, how we think about children, even how we think about, you know, the purpose of sex. Um, could you draw out where he, what he does with this? Yeah, I mean, he he's great. He's a theological ethicist who, um, he's got, he's in his 80s now, so he's got quite an extensive corpus of writing behind him. And it was, um, it was really interesting to delve into that uh, because it wasn't a sort of systematic thing. You had to kind of pull the threads out from, and it was fascinating to do. Um, he has a very strong eschatological focus, a very strong focus on theological ethics, Christian life now, being lived now in light of the life to come. And that's kind of, you know, the whole focus of my book is we live in uh, what Augustine talks about as this mysterious difference of time. We live in the now but not yet, this kind of very awkward meanwhile where we are very much creatures of this creation. We have been created to live on this earth and we still do live on this earth but as christians who are living between jesus resurrection and his second coming we know that this earth is not our home we know that actually we live now in light of eternity and so how of us and others um and certainly my whole book is sort of going okay well if we live now in light of eternity how do we how do we manage this idea that okay marriage and family is very much rooted in the this world's good created order um, and we want to honor that and uphold that and dignify that and celebrate that and live that out 
whilst also recognizing that actually this created order is only the beginning and not kind of the never ending end in that sense, that with the gospel has come a new way of understanding what it is to be in relationship with God, to be in relationship with each other through Christ. And the household of God becomes the primary spiritual family uh, for the Christian person. You know, we, for the ancient Israelites, they were born into God's people through biological descendancy from Abraham. The Christian person is adopted into God's family um, through spiritual inheritance in Christ. Uh, And that changes, that gives this kind of creativity to our relationships with each other where we're children of God, but we're also get to be children of others who mother and father us in the church. Um, we're brothers and sisters with each other in Christ. And I've been reflecting recently that, you know, we talk about marriage as kind of the the oneness relationship. And it is. There is a the, the one flesh relationship of marriage is incredibly unique. But I was reading a couple of months ago in John chapter 17, and this isn't in the book. This is kind of some thinking I've done since then. But in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples and his prayer is that they would be one as he and the Father are one, that the oneness of relationship that Jesus himself prays for his followers, the ultimate oneness, it's like the Father and the Son's oneness is actually brother and sister in Christ. And that's a relationship that will endure into eternity rather than husbands and wives. And so when we kind of understand that, that gives us this enormous freedom here and now to kind of rejoice in relationships, yes, in husband and wife marriage, but in all sorts of other Christian relationships and primarily the household of God relationship with each other. And that's why singleness is essential in that household. Um, Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's so good. It's so big. It's so important. It is. And and it's kind of, it's, well, I think I was just alarmed at how little I've heard this. You know, there's mm-hmm. such a, such an emphasis on the sanctity of marriage. You know, we, we're so used to going to services that talk about this and um, elevate marriage above everything. And, and yet there was, there's almost a sense in some of the sources you quoted that for Christians to get married, the early church considered them to kind of be selling out to the, the spirit of the age. Like, well, of course you just, why would you plow into the, the continuation of this age when we're longing for Christ's return? Whereas it seems perhaps because, like you said, the, the Reformation and the way that attitudes towards sex uh, and uh, and identity, I think Carl Truman's book draws this out further as well, because of how that changed, but then also perhaps because of how comfortable life be- has become generally the church, the saints, we seem to be as content as everybody else with the age that we're in. And so therefore we seem to spend all of our time just trying to make this life as comfortable and as good as we can. And even the way that we approach church is sometimes about how do we create this just kind of utopian happy club where everybody gets along with each other. Um, So what does it look like then for, what would it look like and what can it look like for churches to recover something of a, you know, eschatological or, or living their lives in light of eternity a lot more in this respect what um what would you love to see well i mean i think it's what we would we were talking about before that we it's it's so important for us to understand the privilege of living at this time you know we 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 un, we have the gospel we have we know what jesus did 
we know where Jesus is. We know where we are going to be with him. We know what the end of the story is. And we get, we're living right before that end moment. Um, and it's awkward and it's complex to kind of go, how do you live in this in this life as those who are already citizens of the new creation, um, who have already been raised with Christ and yet are still here embedded in this life. That's complex, but I think it's an enormous privilege. And I think you're right. We do feel very much at home in in the 21st century West. I mean, it's a bit of a crazy place to live in now. Things are becoming increasingly uncomfortable and awkward and difficult in all sorts of ways. And I, I think we're starting to feel a little less settled um, than we were maybe a couple of decades ago and a bit concerned about what the future is going to hold. Um, but I think for us as church communities, we need to remember that what it is to be the church is not kind of just this association of different kind of families who get together once a week because we believe the same stuff. Uh, no, actually, we are a family. We have been remade as the eternal family. We are the household of God. Um, and so the way that we live together in relationship is the mo one of the, mo the most important thing that we could be doing uh, and inviting others into that. Um, you know, one of the chapters of my book that I have is called Telling the Time. We have to learn how to tell the time as Christians, uh, which again, doesn't mean we kind of imagine that we're just being pulled out of this world. We're not, we're still very much here, um, but we're living here in light of the life to come. And that changes the way we think about everything in this life. It changes the value that we put into things in this life. Um, and it helps us to see you know, how important it is that God is patiently waiting to send Jesus back because he wants people to come to him. As many people, you know, as, as names are written in the book of life, they need to be there. They need to be there before Jesus is actually going to come back. And that's the time we're living in. It's it's an exciting time. Yeah. I, well, it, it just strikes me it's so often I've heard people in marriage seminars or just, you know, giving lifestyle advice to Christians and they would often say make sure you get your priorities right God first marriage and children second church third and work work yeah. in church third and you kind of they, they always like, oh, we don't know if it's third or fourth for church or work and you think like again if you're married you, it's important that you have a, a marriage that displays something of the gospel to the watching world but yeah. But to put that above church and to to put our relationships above, even with our children, kind of above church is perhaps to say that we don't actually think the church is of much significance to the to the Christian. And yet you mm. you invented a new word. Uh, you coined the term uh, teleosocial, that the church is mm. a teleosocial community, which means it's, a, it's mm. a community with a clear goal and purpose in mind. And it, even just the elevating of our relationships with our brothers and sisters above just you know with their peers their friends their buddies but actually these are these are the, this is my family this is who i get to do mm -hmm. my life with and this is who i'm investing in um mm. does that i don't know we can maybe maybe we come on to talk about um the way marriage is talked about in a lot of circles but do you have any mm. other kind of just comments briefly on what it means to be a, a teleosocial community and exactly what you're drawing out when you create that that term yeah, well, I mean, I think you encapsulated it, encapsulated it perfectly there. Um, you know, the reality is that the relationship between husband and wife is unique and wonderful, and I want to celebrate and honour that. But actually, the primary relationship that you have with your wife is as brother and sister in Christ. 
you know, that that's actually the foundational one that all of us share with each other. Um, and yes, your particular relationship with your wife is a unique covenant that in no way undermines that, but you're not going to be her husband in eternity. You're going to be her brother just as much as you're going to be my brother. Um, and that doesn't mean I completely understand why a lot of married people might be going, well, hang on a second. I don't want to lose that unique relationship. And I don't, I don't know what, you know, what's a new creation going to be like? Well, it's going to be better than we, we don't have to be fearful about having lost anything. It's going to be the most amazing place that we could possibly imagine. So I think we can put aside the concerns about loss and actually rejoice in the fact that whatever that brother and sister relationship is going to look like when we are most fully human, most fully perfected selves, it it's going to be something more wonderful than we can possibly imagine. And so because that's our, you know, our, our telos, that's where the word, the idea of telos, teleosocial comes from, because that's our telos, our ultimate end relationally with each other is as brother and sister in Christ, as the household of God, that actually changes up the way we think about its importance here and now. And single people, because I don't have that unique marriage relationship with someone I relate to every other man as my brother in Christ. My life now ought to give you a little glimpse, an imperfect one, but still a little glimpse of what all of our lives are going to look like for eternity as those who are brothers and sisters without being husbands and wives. And that's why I think the church needs single people in her midst as much as she needs married people uh, to point us towards the reality of the marriage between Christ and the church. Um, there's this beautiful complementary partnership between marriage and singleness in the church today. Mm, it's really good. It's really good. Um, well, so, so one of the one of the things I've, I've been aware of recently is my, my eldest son's just turned 13 and um, I'm kind of helping us as a church develop an intentional approach to raising sons and discipling them well and helping them transition to manhood well and just the amount of time I'm now starting to invest deliberately in trying to disciple my son after reading your book I think I realized oh this is the sort of thing I should be trying to do with brothers brothers and sisters in the church more generally but the unique relationship that I have as his father biological father means almost that I feel as though I have extra permission to do what I want with this one you know I can, I can make up <laughs> yeah. the rules as I go with this one and that's part of the thrill of being a dad kind of put, you yeah. know, he might, his counselor won't agree in years to come I'm sure but <laughs> the, the challenge is then how do we how do we create that level of intentional discipling and kind of one another in relationships within the church where there isn't the biological permission or the permission from biology that we get um have you been in churches or experienced settings where you've seen intentional discipleship taking place that has seemed to kind of transcend families biological families and and what are some uh, just advice you might give to churches on how to create settings that allow for that level of uh, life on life influence yeah, I mean, well, you see it in the pastoral epistles, don't you? That whole idea of older men, you know, teaching younger men, older women teaching and training younger women. There's a kind of a, they, there's a special relationship that's called out sort of intergenerationally from older to younger, that kind of discipling relationship. And it's really important that that happens in our families. Um, but, uh, you know, there was a there was a shift that happened historically 
Um, and the Puritans were pretty key here, actually. I don't think I talked about this in the book, but there was a shift that happened in sort of the 1600s where the, the family, um, the household family, became increasingly seen as the primary place of relationship. You know, if the church of God was going to continue, it needed to be brought into the family and that's where it was nurtured. And it kind of took that idea of the discipling relationship, the spiritual parenthood um, and growth relationship between generations out of the church and, and sort of siphoned it off into this particular family. And in one sense, that investment of a father into his son, a mother into her daughter, you know, parent to child is so important. But what you lose when you kind of isolate it into the, into the family household is the breadth of parenthood from the rest of the church. Um, and not just, you know, adults to kids, but older Christians to younger Christians. I, I look back on the people who discipled me when I was younger, and I'm so thankful for the way that they actually invested in my spiritual growth, in my relationship with Jesus. Um, because if I was left to do it on my own, um, particularly I didn't grow up in a family that is a Christian family. My mum's a Christian, but, you know, she, I love her dearly, but she's she's never been my discipler. In fact, it, it's kind of been the reverse, if I might say that, in, in sort of as I've grown up. Um, I didn't get that in my home. A lot of people don't get that in their homes. And so to be parented spiritually by other people in our church communities is just enormously important um, rather than just isolating it to the family home and saying that's their job, that's where it happens, and then we just get together and kind of do this thing once a week and then flee back to our to our households in that sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you mentioned that you're the stuff about the Puritans because I'd heard you say similar in a, a lecture that you gave on the, it was called the historical contingency of the family or the household, which I thought was amazing. I, I watched that before I then read your book. And uh, you're right, it didn't come up in the book. I was like, I want to hear more about that. The, the Puritans, not just the approach to the home, but the way they thought about work and the sphere outside of the domestic household. Um, can you say a little bit about that? Because I found that really um, instructive as well. Yeah, I, mean, I think that, I think in the book there's a little bit about the importance of the Industrial Revolution, but I, I've since done a bit more sort of historical research on, on the household itself. Um, and for anybody who wants to, you can find this lecture online. It's called The Historical Contingency of the Household. If you Google my name and that phrase, it should come up. It's at a website called the Priscilla and Aquila Centre. Um, and then you can, you know, test me against what I'm about to say now with the actual historical facts that I <laughs> talked about in that. But it was the idea that uh, post-Reformation, as the, you know, as the world was changing uh, and the world was growing in ways as well, um, certainly colonially it was growing, um, Christians and particularly Protestant Christians sort of uh, came to see the importance of creating a Christian society and the key to that was creating Christian households. Uh, and so a lot of the Puritan idea sort of was interplaying with both of those things. Um, the household became increasingly important uh, as opposed to kind of the broader community life. Before this, households were essential cogs in the broader community. They were quite outward looking. And sort of when we get to the middle of the second millennium, households start to become a bit more inward looking 
um, and if you know, as Carl Truman will talk about, the the individual became more psychologized. The individual started to looking look more inward, and so as these things developed, and then the industrial revolution kicked in, that took the household used to be the place of production for the vast majority of people um, in in sort of the West at that time. The industrial revolution took work out of the household and put it into the family. Uh, sorry, put it into the workplace. Sorry, into the factory. And as it did that, um, the home kind of became emptied of this purpose that it had had for thousands of years, which was as a place of production where people work together to produce and survive. And so the house, the home, the household, the family home became kind of a refuge from the dark, dirty world of work. It became where your emotional needs came to be met because your productive needs were met outside it. And then in the 18, in the 1800s, we particularly got the the very clear separation between the domestic sphere and the work sphere. The work sphere was the sphere of men. The domestic sphere was the sphere of women. Um, and, you know, we can go on from there. But it really, what we think is kind of the male breadwinner winner, female homemaker paradigm, it's only a couple of hundred years old. It's unlike anything that existed in history before that. Um, doesn't make it wrong doesn't mean that they did it right before that it just shows that household structure and the way we engage in the world outside the house is a dynamic thing it changes culturally and socially and our responsibility as Christians is to actually seek to honor God and love others and share the gospel in the midst of these changing social structures rather than to kind of go there was this one time where they did it right which is normally the 1950s and we've got to get back to that because that's just not how it worked. Yeah. Or we or we go further back and we think, oh, let's let's recreate the biblical household. The, the, sorry, the household from Bible times. Or let's all be, you know, g- uh, goat herders in the Middle East or something. Let, yes. Let's live in tents <laughs> yeah, that's again. right. So it is hard. Yeah. It is hard to have conversations about the family when it is so contingent on the historical or cultural setting that you find yourself in it at any time, isn't it? Um, mm, it's something yeah. you said in that lecture as well that. You know, whereas we think of work as being the place almost to self-actualize, the place where you find your meaning, which then understandably, having robbed the, the domestic home of all of its kind of place of meaning and purpose and satisfaction. If you just if you say to women, that's what you get. But men, you get to go to the place where you get to have purpose and meaning. Then you can understand some of the inevitable tension that, that followed from that. But yeah. whereas we think about work as being the place to find your meaning and purpose in life for the Puritans, they saw it as being a, a the sphere of the world and so or even making money as being a dangerous and dark thing we need a, and we need the job of the home is to pray for their men as they went out to work into the devil's domain do you say a bit about that yeah yeah and i i'm i'm by no means an expert on the puritans and from my research i think that tended to happen i mean it might have been there in puritan um times i'm not quite sure but my research certainly indicated that it was happening more and more in sort of Victorian England time, um, that the world outside, the the work world, the world of industry, um, and increasingly the world of commerce was really considered to be a dark and dangerous place. It, it was fraught, it, you know, and so as men went out into the workforce, uh, they were at risk and they were seen to me this was something that I only um, discovered maybe a year ago I hadn't realized this before but they were seen to be particularly at risk because in sort of Victorian England um, era they were actually seen to be the less virtuous sex women were 
regarded as being more inherently virtuous. The, the more inherently virtuous human being was the woman. And so the kind of, you know, the risky man took on the, the dark and dangerous world and what, what he needed was a home full of virtue and safety where he would come to and he would be nurtured and kind of built up ready, um, kind of had that injection of virtue from his, his wife and his family and then built up to go back out into the world. Um, and so the home really became the domain of virtue and therefore of the woman uh, in ways that w- we would find, you know, a bit odd to think about today, but was very much um, uh, a sign of the times. And a, a good, a really good, um, from memory, a really uh, good analysis of that is um, in a book called Neither Egalitarian Nor Complementarian, or maybe the other way around, Neither Complementarian Nor Egalitarian by Michelle Lee Barneswell, I think. Um, so, yeah, if people want to chase it up, um, she's got some really good historical treatment of that. That's really good. And I, I just appreciate even you saying that it's kind of I think we're living in an age of historical revisionism where we're, we're flattening everything to say that the past was always this or always that. But um, actually, it wasn't always the case uh, of the way that we're often fed to think about the past. Now, staying in that kind of era, the kind of the 16th century onwards, that does seem to be when um, a lot of our contemporary attitudes towards marriage and singleness, both in society, but also in the church, do change. You quoted um luther earlier and i just I, I drew out a quote from your book about from luther who said um who said this sex according to luther was more necessary than sleeping and working and eating and emptying the bowels and the bladder and i think it was calvin who said that the proper medicine for this sexual drive is marriage um that that statements like that being made by the church um in reaction to perhaps an overemphasized chast overemphasized emphasis on oh, an overemphasis on chastity um in the monastery that is that kind of part of that language is that part of what then sows the seed for how we think about sex and marriage yeah ab- absolutely absolutely and so you mentioned carl truman's book before um his two books rise and triumph and the modern self and strange new world are really helpful in tracing through kind of the ideological shifts in western society um that moving from around that time a little bit later till present day uh, but what I think we don't often appreciate is just how important the church's theology uh, actually was in informing this shift as well. It didn't happen despite us. It very much happened because of us in lots of ways too. And so, yes, the Reformation was fundamental, not just in um, reviving marriage as a created good uh, and sort of, you know, actually allowing clergy, allowing pastors to marry and, and enjoy family life, but it, it did have a massive shift in a theology of sex. And this was often, this was kind of um, really responsive to what was going on at the time as, as Luther and the other reformers looked at the monasteries, looked at the, the, the clergy and saw people who had vowed to, you know, take to, to live a celibate life, failing to do that. It seems now that possible reports were a bit over-exaggerated, that not every monk and every, you know, priest um, was being sexually immoral. But there was certainly enough emphasis there on that, that the reformers like Luther would go, well, actually, sex is, you're not, you can't live this way because you weren't designed to live this way. Sex is this kind of biological necessity that is built into you that you need to express 
And the, the only way that you can kind of do that is through marriage legitimately. And so marriage becomes the remedy for the need for human beings to have sex. So you either need to get married or you need to be this rare exceptional person. Luther says, you know, not more than one in a thousand who have been specially spirit, spiritually empowered by God to kind of to overcome that biological necessity. And that is where we start to see the development of this idea of the gift of singleness of what we call it today. The gift of singleness is this special gift of spiritual empowerment um, to be asexual, essentially, to not, you know. And so that fundamental change of sex, not simple, not as something that, yes, we all have, well, most of us have a drive towards, but an irresistible drive towards is is fundamental. Um, it, it really is part of what raises marriage up as this kind of necessary thing for the Christian, unless you're the rare exception. And Luther will say things like, you know, without either marriage or this special empowerment, um, the Christian person is bound to commit heinous sin without end. Uh and that's our inheritance. That's that's very much part of the foundation of Reformed theology's thinking about marriage, singleness, and sex today. Mm, yeah, that's helpful. You mentioned it there. Maybe we could just touch on this, the gift of singleness as an idea, because so as my understanding is the gift of singleness is, is Paul is essentially saying, if you're married, that if you're unmarried, that is the gift from God to you. If you're married, that is a gift from God to you. So therefore, whatever state you're in is God's gift to you, rather than saying singleness is a spiritual gift, like, say, prophecy is. Um, yeah. Is that what's your take on that gift? Yeah, my, mine's the same. Um, I I think, well, I think a, a dominant, a dominant, interpretation of 1 Corinthians 7 verse 7 um, where Paul says he wishes all were unmarried as he is um, but each has his own gift from God one has one kind one has another the, the sort of dominant evangelical interpretation today is that Paul is saying that he has a special spiritual empowerment um, he wishes everybody could have this gift like he does but not everybody does and so if you don't have this special spiritual gift you God intends for you to get married um you shouldn't try and remain unmarried like Paul was. That's the dominant. That's the dominant. The dominant perspective. Yeah, maybe not. So, I think we in um, the UK and Australia maybe have a little bit more variance on this. Over in certainly American evangelicalism, it tends to be the primary perspective. Um, I I don't think that that is theologically or exegetically sound. Uh, both when you go back and look at what's going on in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7, 8, and then when you look at our broader theology of um, sanctification and the power of the spirit within us, I just don't think it makes sense. And I'm, I'm working on another book, uh, which will have a bit more of a discussion. And in fact, if you go to my Substack, I've got a couple of posts on this, um, so you can read there. Um, but I think what Paul is saying there is that being unmarried is a good gift from God. Being married is a good gift from God. God gives. It's this idea of being given, you know. God gives these things to different people. Um, and I think we would say theologically God gives us what we need to live obediently to him in that in that situation. We have his grace. We have his spirit dwelling within us. Uh, and that I think is, you know, if we're going to talk about quote-unquote gift of singleness, 
uh, that I think is simply what it is. If if you're single, um, it's because a good God, sovereign God has you single here and now, uh, and you're not lacking anything that would re- allow you to live a good and godly life for him in your singleness. Oh, man, that's really good, really helpful. Just on that comment then, uh, you... you um sketch out different attitudes towards singleness within the the pre-reformation era let's say where there were there were some distinctions made between those who are single by choice and those who are single just by virtue of not being able to you know get married for whatever reason um and that some some are, some are elevated above the others what's your take on like is it is it as virtuous and as good to just find yourself single or, or is it, must it be something that you have decided to pursue a single life? Um, yeah, I think, well, I think the, the question there comes down to where does the goodness, where does the meaning, the significance lie? Does it lie in my choice? Is it about my choice, my works, my intention that makes this thing good? Or does it lie in the the situation itself, in the reality of being single and what God's purpose is for my singleness and for singleness generally, um, you know, which we talked a bit more about, you know, the eschatological purpose of singleness. Uh, I think, you know, certainly as a Reformed Christian, I would say, well, the significance, the meaning doesn't lie in anything I do. Doesn't, you know, it's not found in kind of my choice or or my integrity in making this choice. It's actually found in the situation in which God has given me to live. Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong or bad um, to be someone who makes a choice to remain single at all. I want to honour that and celebrate that for those who do. But it doesn't, it, there's not sort of some two-tiered system of unmarried singles where there's some who are really doing singleness and there's some who are kind of just gotten stuck with it and so they make do. Uh, and I think we need to avoid that, um, you know, because we could say the same thing with marriage. We could say, well, there's those who really choose who they get to marry, but the vast majority of people around the world have very little agency even today in who <laughs> they choose. Mar- arranged marriages in much of the world is still the reality. Um, it's not about the choice, the individual's agency and how they exercise it that the significance is found. It's actually found in the institution of marriage itself and then the Christian person living that out in glory to God and love of others um, in response to the gospel rather than sort of as something that adds to the gospel or makes it better somehow. Yeah, really, really good. I love that. Well, let's talk about uh, attitudes towards single people or singleness then. Um, I do got some quotes again from your book here from some American um, pastors so one common thing that it seems that you hear is that marriage is necessary for Christians sanctification or maturing as a Christian. Um, so Al Mola said the main the main way God is going to sanctify us is in our marriages. Another writer, Gary Thomas, says that in mar- marriage is the preferred route to becoming more like Jesus without any hint of irony. I thought was amusing to me. Um, <laughs> and Debbie Macon said that protracted singleness rarely glorifies God. Those are some strong statements that don't seem to elevate singleness very highly at all in the, in the particularly in the North American church. Um, now, in history, I guess single people have been thought of in different ways. Again, you uh, some things that you quote that between 1575 and 1700s, um, 
at least 25% of the population were single. And that resulted, it seems, in efforts by society to try to convince people to uh, get rid of their single life and instead get married. Um, they, they proposed a singleness tax and even considered the auctioning off of single women, which um, is, would be amusing if it wasn't terrifying and heartbreaking. But they also... <laughs> There's also the, the terms for particularly women who are single, such as spinster, old maid, thornback, attitudes towards singleness in general. Um, I'd love to get some of your reflections on that in about the wider culture, but then also in the church. Yeah, well, I mean, historically, the, particularly the single woman got a bit of a rough time. Again, we're talking sort of from the Reformation Enlightenment period, period on. Um, yeah, it, it, there were times when it was... Um, it was they had a bit more uh, independence and social standing, but generally, you know, the West has been a place where marriage is seen to kind of uh, increasingly become the place where you live out your best life um, and make your best contribution in the world. Uh, and you know, we've sort of traced through all the sort of some of the ways that that is, has resulted in in where we are today as a society. But you know, those quotes that you you read out. Um, they are the Christian inheritance of making the family, the household, the place of Christian discipleship rather than the church and the household, you know, partnering with the church. So if if the household is where your discipleship happens, then, of course, marriage is the primary arena in which God is going to sanctify you. Um, but if we actually see the church, the community of God's people, as being our primary household, then we we see that spiritual maturity and growth comes um, in all areas of our life as we engage as brothers and sisters together in the world. Um, frankly, I think the idea that marriage, mar of course, let, well, let me qualify something. Of course, God is at work sanctifying married people through their marriages. And that happens in really unique ways um, that are different at times to the life of single people. So I don't want to in any way kind of go, it doesn't happen there. It absolutely does. But I can assure you that actually God is doing his stuff in me, <laughs> making me more like Jesus in sometimes some painful ways as a single woman that you guys don't get to experience. There's things about that are unique to my context and situation that God is actually using to make me more like Jesus. Um, and that's because the promise is that it's ultimately not our marriages that are making us more like Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit that is inside each of us, dwelling inside of us, the helper who is doing that work in us. Um, and he uses thank god he uses all the different relationships in our life to actually to do that um and so i i it makes me really sad that um certain people think that marriage is the way to become more like jesus um it's a way but it's a way because god has promised he's going to do that work wherever we are whatever's going on in our life um and whoever is in our life with us that's that's the privilege of actually being indwelt mm. by the third person of the Trinity. Mm. So good. It's so important for us to recover um, and to think, like I, I think I said to you before we start recording again, like you're re reading your book as, it's like taking a red pill. It's kind of opened my eyes to things that were, were there, the truth that's at work. And so I see it so often now in conversations with people about church, not just the emphasis on marriage, but the, the lack of emphasis on the church and the, ch the church as the family 
and one of my particular mm. i say bugbears but maybe it's growing as a bugbear is um is when you hear of husband and wife pastoral teams leading the church the husband and the wife lead the church and of course that's not wrong and there's grace on people to do that but often it's a default because well the husband has authority and he's married to this woman so therefore she must have authority too over the church you know, that undermines this is supposed to be a a second family that trumps that first family and so the relationships there they're not irrelevant because they're part of what qualify or disqualify you but they're not they're not considered as being the primary significant thing when it comes to leadership and authority within the local church it has to be about this recovery of emphasis on this family the teleosocial family that's pulling us forward into christ's glorious future that awaits us and so yeah, like I said, once you see that, you can't unsee it. And then you notice it everywhere. You find yeah. you're, you're tripping up over <laughs> language. You, you know, everything gets kind of then put under the microscope. But what's different, and I think what I, I took out from reading your book is, so, so previous conversations I've had with people about singleness, it's often been, um, what do we, so we talk about it and I go, so what do we do about this? Oh, okay, what we need to do is married people and families need to make sure they're making room for single people in their lives. And I think you even described that as being the worst possible response or something. Oh, do I? Well, I, oh, no, I, I, I mean, mean, I do I, have, yeah. Yeah, that was a particularly concerning response. Yeah. Then married people need to take, you see single people yeah. as their charity that they need to therefore, you know, include in their great utopian community that is marriage. Yeah. Whereas yeah. actually once you see what you're saying, that kind of, I don't know, the problem is much more significant than that i don't know any comments or reflections yeah. on all of this yeah yeah i mean i do want to say i let me encourage married people to invite single people into their lives i actually think that's really important but the, you do that not because you know you you feel sorry for this single person and want to kind of give them some pseudo version of belonging to a family you you do it because actually as christians they are your family um you know and so you know a very specific practical example uh, is when you walk into a church on a Sunday, who do you sit with? Now, most churches that I've been to, families walk in and they all sit together. And sometimes they might leave room and they could say to someone, oh, I've, I've left a seat for you, come and sit with us. Now, in one sense, that's great that you've left a, sit, a seat for me, come and sit with us. But actually, you don't need that seat is already mine because I belong in this family of God's people as much as you do. It's not like there's one empty seat left for me. I could go and, you know, sit right in the middle of your family. I'm just going to come and sit right in the middle and kind of push you off to the side. That's actually a representation of who we are in this moment as we're meeting together as God's family. Now, I'm not saying single people go and do that. I'm just giving you a kind of example of, you know, when we meet and we sit together, even in church, that can be an indication of how we're thinking about who we are as this group of people. Are we these little associations of individual household units that kind of casually make room for somebody else to come and join them? Or do we walk in going, here we are as one big family and kind of demonstrate that in how the conversations we're having, who we're sitting with, what we're talking about from the front. Um, there's all sorts of ways. It is a bit like taking the red pill that suddenly you go, oh, hang on a second. We don't have to do things the way we have been doing them. Sometimes there's good reason to keep that. But also there's good reason to think about doing things a bit differently that actually demonstrate in truth what we say we are um, in, in theology as the church. Yes. Amen. Amen. But it is a 
it's something that we need to think through because again you quote some statistics here that according to analysis 67 percent of singles felt that marriage is the expected lifestyle in the church 40 percent felt it was presumed something was wrong with them if they weren't married 43 percent of people also felt that church didn't really know what to do with them and 27 percent of single people in church feel ignored or inadequate which is a is a sign that we've overemphasized the nuclear household and i thought it was interesting again how you, you show that even that term itself has been redefined to mean the domestic household or the biological household it's a sign that we've overemphasized that and ignored christian witness on this issue before for the first 1500 years of the church and what jesus said you know we you know we've heard teaching i've heard teaching certainly that's made it clear that marriage and procreation was extremely important until christ because it was about the bringing forth of the promised seed but now that he's come actually he's created this new community that that trumps that and so it's so important that we we get we think this through not just from a, how can we make our churches better places for single people but how can we ensure that our theology is more biblical and we have much more of an eschatological vision of what the church is and how we're supposed to live our lives as christians this is this is hugely important uh, is i guess what i'm getting um so hence why i appreciate your book and appreciate your time today anything else as we kind of draw this conversation to a close that's on your heart or mind or things you just want to say in response to some of that Oh, gosh, we could keep talking forever, couldn't we? I mean, I'm just delighted that, you know, my work has kind of provoked you to think on this because this is what I wanted to do. You know, you don't get to the end of the book and go, all oh, right, well, now I have all the answers. I know exactly what I've got to do. Here's my blueprint to make change. The whole point of my book is really to kind of resource a conversation, um, to give you something to sort of start with and then to provoke that conversation and sort of say, this is something that we as God's people uh, need to take seriously yes for the sake of the single christian in our midst but for the sake of who we are as the bride of christ i mean the church is so beloved to god that she is being presented to christ as his bride that's how much god loves the church and so how much do we love the church how much do we love who we are in relationship with each other how much do we not just look forward to that day when the church, we collectively will marry Christ, but the interpersonal relationships we are going to have with each other for all eternity. And, you know, we don't want to look back on earth and go, oh gosh, we were such schmucks there. Why didn't we think about doing this better at the time? You know, um, actually now's the time to kind of embrace that, to work it out with each other, um, to come alongside each other and think these things through and give each other the freedom and generosity to play around with this a bit um, and to actually work out in practice with each other, uh, not just kind of make practical changes, though practical changes are good, but to know why we're making those practical changes, to have a theology that's driving those practical changes, um, because that's where we'll actually see the fruit being born long term. Mm. Oh, man, thank you. You're recovering a, a proper centralized vision of the beauty of the church as you said the bride of christ uh, well danny we'll put links to descriptions on um where people can find some of the things that we've talked about your Substack and your book um thank you so much for all your time today and for all that you're doing uh, in thinking these things through for the church oh it's my pleasure thanks for having me on and thanks for being part of the conversation that's what i want us to do i want us to be talking with each other about these things mm -hmm.